this period looks a lot like the 1940s, which is when you have a combination of high debt and high inflation, uh, which is not what you had in the 70s. In the 70s, they had low debt and high inflation, which means they had a lot more tools to respond to it. When you have that combination of both, it's very hard for central banks to do it. That's the closest thing that a central bank has to a checkmate scenario where there's, there's only bad options. Hello there again from Miami. I'm still here. How are you all? Did you have a good weekend? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Lynn Alden back on the show. Now, listen, you know I've tried over the last year to keep every show in person. I much prefer an in-person interview, but with everything that's been happening in the UK, with rising interest rates, the pound crash in inflation, and an energy crisis, I really wanted to get an update uh, with Lynn. Not only for listeners of the show, but anyone in the UK who's struggling with this, the problem is is trying to get to Lynn was difficult. So I asked her to do a remote show. So we broke the rule. We did a remote show and we got an amazing update from her. But I do think it's probably going to be the last time I ever do this. If I can't get somebody in person, I'm not going to do it because something is missing when you do these shows remotely. That engagement in person, that in-person feeling. But I do massively appreciate Lynn for making time to do this. And I hope you enjoy this update. It's very good. Lynn, as ever, crushes it. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this or any future show, please do get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? It's, uh, yeah, weird. This feels like back in COVID times when we used to get on the call once uh, once every few weeks and uh, have a chat over Zoom and I feel like we're never going to have to do this again. Actually, do you know what we realized today? You were the last one we also did remotely. Really? Yeah, I was in, where was I? Was I in Austin? I was in Austin, Texas, yeah. Um, but we felt like, because uh, uh, the UK is collapsing at the moment, and uh, some <laughs> of my uh, friends and peers at home uh, uh, don't know what's going on, a little bit worried. It's like, okay, we're going to break the rule. We're going to do a remote show with Lynn and find out what's going on. So, uh, yeah, how are you? Are you well? I'm pretty good. I'm happy to try to be helpful too. Uh, I know it's a it's a complex times out there. Yeah, and but firstly, before we get into that, uh, are you writing a book then? Uh, it's a project that I want to do. Yes, uh, I, I've written so many articles uh, that you know basically I can I can weave some of them together. I think into a book, um, and it would I think it would help tie things together. Uh, especially because if you write a lot of really long articles, people don't necessarily go and read them in the right order or in the right context. Uh, and you can link to them and you can try to get them to do that, but putting it together in, in a book form, uh, you know, helps. Uh, and so I, I think it's time to to look into doing that. And is it a Bitcoin book or is it an economics book or a mixture of the two? Uh, so it'd be, a, it'd be an economics book, basically a book about money in general, uh, but any any modern uh, you know, book on the subject has to has to have a Bitcoin section. Of course, fantastic. Well, listen, I want the first copy now. I'm staking claim to it. Let me know your price. I want <laughs> first copy that comes off the press if I can get it. Um, okay, let's uh, let's talk about the shit show, which is my country, the UK, and potentially a little bit of the shit show, which is my continent, Europe. Uh, it's been a very strange few weeks, Lynn, um, and I, I, I do joke there, but actually it's it's been quite sad and uh, quite concerning for what a lot of people have gone through. Uh, and, and I know the issues we have right now are global. Um, I can talk about the UK, but I'm aware of, uh, you know, the, uh, the other day that Bangladesh announced that half the country is going to experience blackouts. I'm, I'm aware that there's issues all around the world. But what it seems to me is that there's... Uh, energy crisis, there's war, 
There is uh, inflation, recessionary pressures, interest rates going up. There's lots of issues. <laughs> the thing about the UK, it feels like we've got all of them at once. It feels like everything that possibly could go wrong is going wrong. Uh, and the impact is uh, it's been quite severe, um, especially on those on lower to middle incomes. So I'm trying to understand, one, why the UK has been particularly badly hit, and two, uh, if anything, what people could be doing about it. Um, so really, just, just to start off, Lynn, it would be great to know uh, in terms of what your observations are of the UK. What, why do you think the UK has been particularly badly hit right now? Well, so I think it's a cluster of things all happening at once. Yeah, and so if, if you go back several months, um, I, I started writing about that basically I, I thought we'd encounter a period where central banks would have to print into high inflation, right? So normally when inflation's low, central banks have more flexibility to you know print money. Uh, and when uh, inflation is very high, that's when they try to pull back and tighten. And try to rein that in, um, but you know one of the theses that I've had is that this period looks a lot like the 1940s, which is when you have a combination of high debt and high inflation, uh, which is not what you had in the 70s. In the 70s, they had low debt and high inflation, which means they had a lot more tools to respond to it with, with higher rates uh, and with with tighter monetary conditions. Whereas when you have that combination of both, it's very hard. Uh, for central banks to do it. That's the closest thing that a central bank has to a checkmate scenario where there's there's only bad options. Uh, and they can they can pick between some bad options, they can delay things, uh, but they basically run into an inability to control uh, you know, the system as they'd like to. And you know, going into this, this higher inflation, uh, energy crisis type of period, there are some central banks uh, that were, you know, they, they did all the things you'd expect. Uh, like Brazil, for example, they raised rates from like 2% to like 14% starting early in 2021. Uh, a lot of emerging markets really have no uh, uh, choice. They, they pretty much have to front run that because they face more severe currency problems if they don't. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, some of the most indebted developed countries in the world, uh, you know, from the beginning, from the beginning of the race, they basically tripped over themselves, right? So the Bank of Japan, as all this inflation was coming in, they just said, we're not even going to try. We're gonna we're gonna keep keep rates at zero. We're even gonna do yield curve control. So even if the longer end of the bond curve tries to go up, we're gonna keep printing money and buying those bonds to hold the yields down, uh, even if inflation's above our target, right? So so Bank of Japan's on one side, and then you have central banks like Bra like Brazil on the other side, and. The ECB was also kind of in that Bank of Japan camp, where they have Italy with 150% debt to GDP. Uh, you know, the foreign sector doesn't really want their bonds, uh, and so the ECB is doing this this scheme to sell some German bonds and buy some Italian bonds, and other countries are involved as well. So they're they're kind of in a slightly more limited version of what Japan is doing. And my thesis from a few months ago is that we're going to probably see this in more central banks. I, I cited that the Fed was still holding on, the Bank of England was still holding on, meaning that they were able to tighten to some degree, uh, but that over time they would start falling like dominoes and have to print into high inflation like like Japan and, and to some extent like the ECB is doing. And unfortunately, what we saw in the past couple of weeks is that the Bank of England you know, that domino did fall. They had to join the chorus of some of the other most indebted countries in having to do quantitative easing, despite the fact that they have official, you know, roughly 10% inflation. And we can get into some of the reasons why, uh, but it comes down to very high debt levels combined with that acute level of inflation that, that you know, made it so that they couldn't respond as they would have done in if this was like the 1970s. What would happen if they hadn't have responded? Uh, so, 
eventually you'd get sovereign bond default, which is almost unthinkable in developed countries because they they have the printing press, right? So they they almost always avoid nominal default. Essentially, if we go to the proximate issue of what happened, so the, the deeper issue is too much debt. Anytime a country gets over 100% debt to GDP, it's really hard to, to find the balance sheet space to shove all that debt into. Uh, so that that's the deeper issue. Uh, but the more proximate issue, the you know the the issue that that's closer to the actual problem in this instance was the pension system. So so the UK has a very large pension system. Their assets are a very large share uh, compared to GDP. Uh, so it's a very meaningful uh, large pool of assets, and they have a lot of exposure to those bonds, to government bonds. Um, and then they also use uh, various derivative schemes because they have certain payouts they have to make on a very specific basis, right? They have to meet very specific payout uh, schemes. And so they'll get this kind of derivative uh, you know, product that's offered by companies like BlackRock and others, and they have to post collateral. Uh, and so they're essentially in some ways leveraged. Um, and they're, they're, you know, there there are experts on that specific system that can go way more into detail than I can. But the, the core of the problem is that, you know, as inflation was roaring and as the Bank of England was no longer buying its bonds, it wanted to reduce, it actually wanted to sell bonds. It wanted to reduce its balance sheet. It wanted to try to tighten. Uh, and so the question becomes, who was buying the bonds? Uh, and, you know, the yields were way below the inflation level, uh, and, and you know, the, the Bank of England was no longer buying. And so you started to get an increase in, in yields. And this happened across developed markets. It happened in emerging markets. Uh, everybody's yields are going up. Uh, and then the bank, uh, you know, basically the new government there announced um, uh, unfunded tax cuts. They said, okay, here's our fiscal budget. We're going to cut taxes. And we're not going to re- replace that with spending cuts. We're just going to, you know, it's basically going to be a bigger deficit. And this is at a time when there's already deficits, there's high inflation, uh, there's, you know, the central bank's not buying the bonds. And so the bond market had a freak out. They said, wait a second, this is going to be inflationary. This is going to be the, 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 the supply of these sovereign bonds is going to increase. Who's going to buy them all? And so there started to be kind of a, a rapid selling pressure on those bonds. And when you have a leveraged system, like you have in the UK pension system, uh, when the, when the value of your collateral goes down, those, when when yields go up, it means the bond price is going down. And if you hold all the way to maturity, it doesn't matter too much. I mean, inflation above yields still matters. Uh, but if you're posting them as collateral and you need to maintain certain ratios, uh, if that if that value of the collateral goes down, you know you might get liquidated. You might have to sell those bonds and 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 basically you know settle that that leverage and then the problem is if if everybody's using the same collateral and is involved in the same type of scheme then once one party has to sell that further worsens the price because now you have, now you're a forced seller that's why for example in the bitcoin market some of those some of those price drops can be dramatic because you get a lot of people that have to sell at the same time and you kind of had a slightly less extreme version of the bond market but it's more severe when it happens to the bond market because this is supposed to be uh, you know, one of the safer types of investments. And so you had forced selling, which made the price worse, and therefore more funds had to do forced selling, which makes the price worse. And it just it, it, it creates a vicious cycle that feeds on itself. And there's no other balance sheet that's kind of ready to jump in and absorb all this. And so if it was left unchecked, you could have had yields just keep spiking. Uh, and and you, then you, you can get outright kind of mass liquidations and a literal default. Uh, and so that's where... Bank of England steps in and says, look, we they literally had a, a speech planned the next day for how they were going to reduce their balance sheet. They had to scrap that. 
and they had to go from planning to reduce their balance sheet to increase their balance sheet, you know, doing QE, uh, buying bonds. And they plan on doing it for two weeks. Uh, and then, you know, they, they delayed their intended bond sales. They eventually want to get back to trying to sell bonds. We'll see if they ever, ever get there. Usually the answer with these types of things is no. Usually the, usually the balance sheet keeps going up. It might pause for a period of time. It might go down, you know, briefly, but it's hard for them to ever, you know, get those down because there's really a, a lack of balance sheet capacity to absorb the size of the flows. And in recent days, you know, the base of the Bank of England stepping in helped solve the yield problem. So it stopped that that kind of vicious cycle of forced selling. Uh, we also saw that the government kind of walked back some of their fiscal plans to try to restore some degree of confidence in the market. And so the, the emergency is kind of you know on, on ice for now. Uh, but we we, have, we still have a situation where the Bank of England is doing QE uh, during 10% inflation, which is you know that's kind of banana banana republic type of you know, stuff. Uh, but that's, that's what we get in a high a toxic combination of high debt and high inflation. But how does that end then? Because if, if, if you shouldn't be doing that, if you shouldn't be queuing during a time of high inflation, is this kind of like the early stages of Weimar? It just becomes a vicious cycle that will get even higher inflation and exactly the same will happen. So it can be uh, Weimar-like if you specifically have uh, acute energy shortages, right? That, that's why the situation in Europe is so dangerous, right? So, you know, I, I don't, Hyperinflation's not been uh, a key part of my expectation, at least in any sort of investable time horizon, right? So when you look out long enough, you know, all fiat currencies have historically failed. Um, but in any sort of like three to five year time horizon, I've not had hyperinflation uh, as as you know any of my calls on on developed market currencies. What what about instead of hyperinflation, just high inflation? Yeah, this contributes to high inflation uh, because basically you have a loosening of financial conditions into inflation that's already hot. Now, the the bigger factor is going to be what the budget deficit is. Um, you know that that that's what that's what's actually you know adding to money supply along with bank lending. Uh, but you know if if the the interest rates are not suitable compared to uh, inflation. It means the foreign sector doesn't really want to hold that currency. Uh, and then, two, if the banks do in QE to hold yields low, that's again that's contributing to you know the the foreign market not want to buy that currency. We saw that in Japan, for example. Now they have a much less severe energy crisis, uh, and so they have lower inflation that's still but it's still above their target. Uh, and so when when the bond market can't set prices the way it thinks it should. They instead just get out of the bonds, and that hurt the currency, right? So, so the release valve ends up being the currency, uh, and you know that that can happen in various degrees. Right now, uh, both both the the British uh, bonds and the currency have have stabilized to some extent, just because there's there's more restored confidence that you know this system's kind of you know th this problem's contained for the moment. Be a longer term, it, it creates selling pressure on the currency, and when you look at something like Weimar, the reason. Why Weimar at hyperinflation and why you have hyperinflation in some uh, developing countries is that they have liabilities that they can't print, right? So in emerging markets case, it's often they have dollar-based debts, uh, which means that you know no amount of printing can can just fix their liabilities. Uh, they can't, in other words, they can't dilute their liabilities with inflation, uh, and so they they actually face risk of default, which can which can destroy the value of the currency, uh, and then. If you look at Weimar, they had war reparations. They owed, you know, reparations in gold. They, you know, their their industrial base was damaged by the war, so they had serious supply, uh, uh, you know, constraints. And we're seeing a, a mini version of that in Europe today, unfortunately, where you know there's an acute energy shortage. It's kind of like an emerging market that has liabilities that it can't just print. 
Uh, and so that's why we're seeing unusually high inflation in Europe, even compared to some other trouble spots like Japan or or the United States and and, and other countries like that, because it's, it's that 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 specific energy shortage that is worse there for for you know reasons we all know. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lender market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Glastine, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S H O P. Dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to BitCasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And remember, please gamble responsibly. What has been the long-term impact on Japan? Um, We've talked about it before. You've talked about stagflation, but it'd be good to kind of explain that again to people, um, potentially what we're facing. 
So Japan is in a, a weird case because it, it's it's managed to prolong its situation more than any other country in, in its circumstances has done. And when people think of Japan, they often think of crazy money printing, right? They, they think of, you know, the country has 250% debt to GDP. The Bank of Japan's balance sheet is bigger than 100% of GDP. It looks like a, a chart that just keeps going straight up. Uh, but in Japan's case, they actually have very slow, broad money supply growth, right? So, uh, you know, this is... Uh, basically, an example like it, you know, you've had you've had Snyder on, on your on your platform, Jeff Snyder, and he would he would quickly point out that QE is not money printing, and there are contexts where I agree, and there are contexts where I don't agree. In Japan, uh, that's a, that's a case where I generally agree because you have tons of QE, tons of base money going up, but it's not resulting in a lot of broad money supply growth. In fact, Japan had the slowest broad money supply growth in the in the world over the past 10 and 20 years. Uh, and so it's no wonder that they had among the lowest inflation in the world. And the reason was, you know, they had some uh, money supply growth from those monetized fiscal deficits, uh, but they generally didn't have huge deficits. And then it was also offset by corporate deleveraging. So when you pay back a loan, you actually destroy money. And so, in Japan's case, you had maybe five percent average, uh, you know, broad money growth from from fiscal deficits, but then you had like negative two percent money supply growth from corporate deleveraging, and so it balanced out to around three percent uh, annual growth, uh, and so you had a, a pretty non-inflationary environment. Also, the past decade did not have acute commodity shortages, uh, and so they were able to get away with that for a very long period of time. The problem now. Is that for the first time in quite a while they're facing pretty acute inflationary problems because just like anyone else they need to imp, you know import energy uh, that you know they're they're you know they 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 do export a lot um, but the the raw materials they often need to import including energy and specifically including liquefied natural gas which is now very elevated in price uh, and so they're facing an issue where their inflation's above their target their bond yields started to go up uh, but they have 250 percent. Uh, government debt to GDP, so they can't afford high interest rates. Uh, they can't afford the the interest payments, the tightening that would come with that, and so they're doing formal yield curve control, uh, much like the United States and some other countries did in the 1940s, where they're willing to print money and buy any bond that tries to go above 0.25% uh, yields, uh, which which is, in my opinion, too low. They they could have set that threshold a little bit higher; it would have been a little bit easier for them. But the downside is that so they're printing, they're doing QE into a high inflationary environment, and the bond market can't get the price it wants. And so everyone says, well, I'm not going to own Japanese bonds. And so everybody gets, everybody sells the bonds they have. It takes out on the currency. Uh, now, Japan, however, does have defenses. They have something like $1.2 trillion worth of, of treasuries, of, of you know foreign exchange reserves. And so when they're faced with a situation of they don't want to increase yields, uh, you know, but they also don't want you know, super disorderly yen devaluation, they can start selling some of their reserves uh, and buying yen back. Uh, and they, you know, for the first time since the 90s, they they did do that recently. They they sold some treasuries in order to try to stabilize the the fall of the yen. And they just, I mean, they 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 only sold a small amount. I mean, they have they have, you know, more than a trillion more where that came from if it came down to it, which it won't. And you have similar situations in in China. Uh, and, and you know parts of Europe where these these big uh, you know uh, countries have a lot of treasuries. The difference in the UK's case is they have less reserves, uh, including you know both absolute level and relative to their GDP uh, and their and their money supply. 
Uh, and so the UK does not have a ton of options it, it, when it comes to stabilizing its currency if they're also trying to stabilize the bond market at the same time. You kind of have to pick one or the other. And in that environment, the, the sovereign bond market will almost always win because you know default is, is generally unthinkable. But, but you say it's unthinkable, but is it a possibility? Like when you look at the UK now and everything you've explained, do you think that's a possibility? And if it is, and it was to happen, uh, how do, how does that play out? What are the consequences of that? So it, it's always technically a possibility, but it would be a choice, right? So if, if the liabilities are denominated in your own currency, it, it's always a choice not to default, right? And the only the only instance I'm aware of of a country defaulting in its own currency was Russia in the 1990s uh, during the Asian financial crisis. They actually just nominally defaulted on on some on some debts that were in their own currency. Um, so it, it, it's, it's happened, but it's extremely rare. Uh, and it doesn't really happen in these, these, you know, these Western countries. Uh, and so I, I would consider it a very low probability event that they would outright default because it, it would ripple through everything else, right? So banks use uh, treasuries as, you know, the foundation of their safe collateral, right? So if you defaulted on a big enough scale to banks, uh, you would then put the entire deposit base at risk. Um, in addition, uh, as we saw from the pension system, they're huge owners of of the bonds, and so if they default, you know, to some of the, the pensioners, uh, now you have an insolvent pension system. Um, and of course, you know, for a developed market to default, you'd now be just junk status. You know, your your ability to ever get reasonable yields in the future is now highly impaired. And so you'd have just more defaults. Uh, and so normally in this type of circumstances, a, a developed country uh, that that has liabilities in its own currency, you know, 99 times out of 100 will, will print rather than nominally default because it threatens the entire foundation of the system. Going back to the Japan thing for a second, um, why are they able to do so much QE, but it, why, and why in, why is their situation different and it doesn't reach the sort of broad money supply? Uh, so like I said before, they're, they're, they've generally been, and this is, a lot of this was pre-COVID, right? So, so they're, you know, the whole period, the whole decade uh, of abenomics, they, they called it after the, after the former prime minister, was this kind of fiscal heavy uh, printing. But they, they did it during a commodity bear market. Right, so global commodity prices were going down, uh, and there's generally no tight constraints on on their inputs. Uh, they're running a current account surplus until recently, meaning that they, you know, there's there's more country, there's more capital flowing into the country than out, uh, mostly because they had a, you know, they have a positive trade uh, surplus, and then they also they own a lot of foreign investments. They've had decades of of trade surpluses, and so they take those value and then they buy foreign assets. So they get all sorts of interest and dividends from the rest of the world. Uh, and so they, they generally have a pretty strong bid for their currency. They're also, you know, there's low levels of, of uh, you know, extreme politics and, and polarization. Uh, and so it generally has that more safe haven status. Uh, but like, you know, like any other country during COVID, they had a bigger budget deficit than normal. Uh, and now they're facing, you know, bigger energy problems than normal. But compared to Europe and compared to the UK, uh, you know, they don't have the same kind of crazy power price spikes that you're seeing over there. You know, they're they're facing elevated input costs uh, from LNG and things like that uh, and coal, uh, but they don't have nearly the acute level of of energy shortages, uh, and they also have a lot of reserves. And so they're they they've been facing a weak yen lately. It's been a it's pretty been a pretty big move. But there's nothing about their situation currently that's anywhere near as dire or as uncertain as some of the things that we're seeing throughout Europe. 
during the last couple of weeks, when the pension funds were at risk, the, the UK government made the announcement that they were borrowing something like 60 billion or whatever it is to, to shore up the pension funds. One of the things they said is that if they hadn't have spent the money, the pension funds themselves would have collapsed. Um, does that not mean the funds themselves are taking on too much risk? And uh, should they not have been allowed to fail? So yeah, that basically means they are taking on too much risk. Uh, some you know some pensions do that when they are you know their risk. It's kind of like uh, going on tilt, right? Where you know you make a bad situation worse. Some of them don't have enough assets to meet their expected future liabilities, and so they end up taking on more risk. So that's one thing. And then of course that can backfire. And then you know in, in some cases it could be successful where they they fix their shortfall. In other cases they mess up and the shortfall gets wider. Um, in this case, a lot of it was more mechanical because they're all holding the same type of asset. And then that asset had a you know basically the worst year ever, right? So for example, looking at at just U.S. bond markets, even you know it's the it's the worst year in modern history for those bonds. And so. A lot of these things are calculated, assuming that you know, you know, you can have a pretty big fall, but but they weren't really expecting that the level of fall that they got. They weren't expecting this much inflation from that low of a yield level, uh, and so basically bonds were a bubble, uh, and then they were you know in some cases a levered bubble. And so the short answer is yes, they were taking on too much risk, but it's a very it's, it's a very specific type of risk. It's not like they were gambling in other areas it's basically this this kind of this this everybody owning the same asset and then using that asset as collateral and and basically yeah if if it was not bailed out you would have had this this cascading failure of both government bonds and pension funds because it feeds off of itself uh, but on the other hand of that the, you know the, the the way that they got so you know the way that the whole system got so levered in the first place is because of central bank intervention. You know, if you if you didn't have this kind of flexible money standard, debts would have never got this high to begin with. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're you're you you're at the point where it's like you need more of the poison to to not die from the effects of the poison, right? So it's not like, you know, a bailout's a good thing. It's just like they've they put in themselves in a situation where they have a few options. And that's why these these things normally it ends up taking it out on the currency in the long run. It sounds very similar to what happened with the housing crisis. Essentially, yeah. Basically, I mean, especially in the United States, you had real estate went up very quickly. Well, first you first you had Greenspan, uh, you know, the former Fed chair, cut rates all the way to like one percent, and so that basically gave everyone a gigantic incentive to go out and borrow and and invest in real estate. Then you had banks uh, securitize it, so instead of issuing a mortgage and then holding that mortgage on their balance sheet, they didn't throw it into a, a pool of other mortgages and, and sell it. Uh, so it wasn't their problem. And then you had rating agencies, you know, just look at that whole bunch of, of things and stamp, you know, it's triple A, even though there's some subprime mortgages in there. They're like, well, you know, the, the, the thesis was that real estate never goes down. You know, some, sometimes it has like a flat year, maybe it goes down one or 2%, but it never, it never crashes. It's real estate. It only goes up. And of course, if you look back long enough in history, during the Great Depression, uh, real estate went down, uh, and this was the second time in history where U.S. real estate went went down by double-digit percentages, and that wiped out all the models, and it was all highly levered, and the bank system had very little cap, had very little reserves relative to all their all their loan books, and so basically you had this kind of cascading failure. It, it is it is in some ways similar to what we just saw. Uh, but back then, it was more in the private sector, whereas now the problem, you know, the, basically the the cost of bailing out the private sector 
uh, back during the global financial crisis in the United States and Europe and elsewhere was that you push more debt to the sovereign level. Uh, and so that basically it's, it's a similar type of problem, but coming from a, a very different spot this time. Right. Okay. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, Liz Truss announced, uh, well, uh, Chancellor Exchequer announced a number of tax cuts um, designed to stimulate the economy. That was uh, their thesis. Uh, the response to that was pretty negative and the pound crashed, uh, nearly reached uh, dollar pound parity. Uh, first time I went to the US, it was about 2006. I won't get the year right, but I remember it specifically because I got more than $2 to the pound. Uh, and the pound is now quite weakened. I mean, I think even think at the start of the year, it was about $1.38. And I think we're at about, what, one twelve is it now, Danny? One eight, one twelve. Surely they would have known that these kind of announcements would have crashed the pound. So it does make me wonder, are there any benefits to lowering the pound that like I would not have thought about? Well, so one of the one of the benefits of, of reducing um, the value of a currency uh, is that in some cases, the export market can become more competitive, right? So UK products, all as being equal, are now generally, you know, more competitive on the global market price because essentially, you know, UK laborers are getting paid less because even if they're getting paid the same amount, those units are worth less. Uh, and so basically the rest of the world now, you know, you can travel to the UK, it's cheaper. Uh, you know, you can buy their, buy their stuff. It's a little bit cheaper. That's generally the, the advantage, but, but no country really wants to see disorderly uh, devaluation of their currency, uh, like they saw there. Uh, it's also, I mean, Japan has specifically used, uh, you know, currency devalu devaluation as a tool. That's one reason why they're happy to yield curve control is they're saying, you know, we're, we're fine with a weaker currency, uh, cause we get some benefits from it. Um, uh, and, but they just don't want to disorderly, uh, fall in the end. Uh, and so it, it's about the speed sometimes, uh, that matters. And of course, if you're a saver, you don't want that. Uh, you know, you're having inflation is above your yields, uh, and your currency is devaluing compared to many other currencies. Now, part, part of that, uh, difference is also that the dollar has been unusually strong, uh, this period, at least relative to other currencies. So generally what we're seeing is that there were, there's in most years, you have more volatility in emerging market currencies than developed market currencies. This, this year has been an exception. Uh, some of the emerging market currencies have actually held up pretty well because they're the ones that, that out of necessity have to be hawkish. Uh, and so you've had, for example, the Brazilian real is like flat to up versus the dollar this year, uh, even as the dollar has crushed almost anything else. The ruble's up, but that, that's for pretty specific reasons. Uh, and the, the, some of the biggest losers were the euro, the yen, uh, and the pound. And, and of course, I'm, I'm excluding some of the, the truly basket case currencies like, you know, the Turkish lira, the Argentine peso. I mean, those those are even worse. Uh, but excluding, you know, some of those edge cases, if you look at major emerging markets like Brazil, China, uh, India, you know, they've had currency weakness in some cases, but they've not had the same uh, severe currency weakness that we've seen in the most indebted developed markets outside of the U.S. I did see one chart, Lynn, that was put out, which was comparing the dollar to all other currencies. And I'm remembering this chart uh, that every single currency was falling at different levels to the US dollar. Um, I understand why I spent a bit of time this week with um, with Parker Lewis, and we were discussing you know, a number of different things with relation to the, uh, why this has happened. And also just trying to understand the fact that the world is short dollars. And, um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be massively out of my depth here. But does there become a scenario where the dollar becoming so strong is actually bad for the US? And what can they do about that? 
so that's already in some ways the case uh, right. where our, our exports, our physical exports are in many cases less competitive uh, because we how we structured the system. Uh, and so that's that's something I've, I've covered a lot uh, in my analysis of the petrodollar system. Uh, the other the other kind of more uh, immediate effect is that if you get a sharp rise in the dollar, you generally get forward selling of treasuries. Uh, and so uh, you can think of, of of treasuries as like acorns, a, a squirrel, you know, they gather acorns in the summer so they can eat them in the winter. Uh, and so when the dollar is weak and when, when things are going well, a lot of countries will, will print currency and go and buy foreign reserves. They'll buy, you know, treasuries, they'll buy other, other you know, assets outside of their own currency system uh, and store those up. And then if you have a, the opposite, if you have a period where the dollar is rising very sharply, uh, they can they can then sell some of those treasuries. Uh, and so often people think, you know, intuitively when the dollar's going up, it must mean that a lot of foreigners want to buy treasuries and U.S. assets. But in many, it usually means the exact opposite, which is the dollar's going up. And so, you know, these, these countries either stop buying treasuries or slow their purchases of treasuries or outright sell treasuries, uh, either to get dollars to service dollar-denominated debts or to defend the value of their currency. Uh, and so, for example, Japan, uh, you know, sold uh, sold something like twenty billion dollars worth of of reserves in order to stabilize its currency. That's a small drop in the ocean, but combined with the fact that there's very few uh, foreign official pools of capital that are that are buying treasuries, it essentially means that that the U.S. system's running into a similar issue that that the U.K. ran into, which is our our bond yields are going up, that the market's getting very illiquid. Uh, so you know, it's hard. You have you know, wider bid ask spreads and just kind of thin markets where a big trader can move the market. It's supposed to be, you know, one of the most liquid, deep markets in the world, uh, but it's, it's facing, you know, extremely bad liquidity conditions. And so you have a situation where U.S. banks are already stuffed full of treasuries; they can't really buy more uh, unless regulations are changed, which which has been discussed. Uh, you have the Fed uh, letting bonds roll off of its balance sheet, so it, it's a net seller. Uh, just by not reinvesting those, it's doing basically a mild form of QT, uh, and then also you have the foreign sector uh, basically on strike, either not buying or outright selling treasuries, and so that's kind of the the constraint that the Fed can tighten, uh, you know, until uh, it it breaks the treasury market in a similar way that the UK market broke, and so they're not at that point yet, but it's directionally a similar problem where you have you know pretty much every type of balance sheet having to sell at the same time, and then you get disorderly, illiquid, broken sovereign bond markets. And that happened to the U.S. Treasury market back in March 2020. Uh, and so you have a, a kind of a similar thing playing out now, but in, in a less fast way, right? So that was, you know, global trade ground to a halt, you know, basically overnight. Uh, you know, they still had dollar debts that they had to service. And so you had a very rapid selling of foreign treasuries, and it basically broke the, the U.S. Treasury market. The Fed had to come in and buy a trillion dollars worth of treasuries in, in three weeks. Uh, so that was a that was a very rapid version. Uh, and what we're seeing now is is it's 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 happening quickly, but it's not happening as quickly. So it's just the dollar is grinding higher. Uh, foreign treasury holdings are grinding sideways and down, and you have occasional bursts of of sales uh, in order to to backstop currencies, and it's just not healthy for the U.S. Treasury market. So what can the U.S. do about that? So a couple things. One is they can do SLR. They're called you know changes to the supplementary leverage ratio, which is a wonkish way of basically allowing banks to buy more treasuries. Uh, so right now they can basically make it so the treasuries don't count when they're ca- when they're calculating what their capital ratios are. Uh, it essentially allows the banks to lever more. 
uh, but only on only on you know treasuries, uh, not on any sort of other assets. Uh, so that's one thing they can do, and that has a similar effect of QE uh, because it basically improves liquidity conditions. But instead of the Fed buying it, it's it's the commercial banking system, which is actually very a very similar outcome. The other option is that the Fed can do what the UK did, which is with you know the, if the treasury market breaks, they might have to come in and do surprise buying of long duration bonds. And if they want to be conservative about it, they could they could try to sell short duration bonds to offset that. So they can say, okay, well, you know, we're still holding our balance sheet flat, uh, but we're we're twisting the 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 duration of bonds we hold. Um, so that you know they have a range of options that they can do, but they're kind of variations on the theme of money printer go burr, right? So so when the when the sovereign bond market breaks, it it basically, you know, you, you need more currency, more, more reserve creation uh or or more leveraging to to buy those bonds and that's kind of the you know right now the biggest question of macro is is how much can the fed tighten uh in their quest to rein in inflation and will something like that break uh and force the fed to pause or pivot earlier than they'd like to uh and so that, that i'm watching the treasury market pretty closely to to you know to see how close they might be getting to to what we just saw happen to the uk bond market and what would you actually be looking for when you do that? So I, I'd be looking at liquidity indicators. One is yields, right? So if yields keep grinding higher uh, on the long end of the curve, that that's an indicator. Uh, number two, I'd be looking at at liquidity conditions, right? So for example, Bloomberg has a, an index of of government market uh, government bond market liquidity, right? So there are various ways to quantify this, um, and so you, basically you just look for quantitative measures uh, of you know, th- th- reduction in quality and liquidity in what is supposed to be a very liquid um, uh, and safe market, and and we are seeing signs of that. It's basically, you know, most things are showing that it's about as bad as it's it's gotten, except for March 2020. That was worse. It's not it's not fully broken like it did then. March 2020 in the U.S. looked like what just happened in in the U.K. Basically, right. uh, and so we're not there yet, but it's directionally. Uh, you know, not looking healthy for the U.S. Treasury market. But you think it's just a, a kind of matter of time before they turn the money printer back on? Uh, either a, a matter of time until they either turn it back on, or they they do it more clever ways, like that SLR adjustment. Does if they did that SLR adjustment, it, does that increase risk for the commercial banks? Uh, so, in some ways, yes, because it, it gives them more exposure to long-duration treasuries, which which could potentially put them in a similar situation as UK pensions. In practice, um, I think that you know, given that they'd always backstop that with some degree of yield curve control if needed, um, I, in in practice, I would not be worried about the solvency uh, of the U.S. banking system. Uh, you know, in some ways, they're positioned the exact opposite of 2008 now. So in 2008, banks had very low. Uh, treasuries and cash as a percentage of their assets, which meant that the you know the vast majority of their assets consisted of loans and riskier securities, uh, and so those that's the portion that's subject to nominal default risk, whereas the the cash and supposed to the treasuries are not. Uh, whereas now they're very highly allocated to cash and treasuries, uh, and so they have you know and and so they have more of a basically they would have to have worse defaults on the risky side of their book. In order to have a similar event of what happened in 2008, right? Uh, and so overall, I'm not really worried about U.S. banks, but it, it basically would stuff them uh, with with more treasuries if they decide to do that instead of putting those on on the Fed Fed balance sheet. So they have some options. So that would be what Jeff Snyder talks about, where he says that the banks since 2008 have just not taken enough rich a risk. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. That's basically 
uh, you know, it's in part from regulations. So, so various regulations have basically, uh, you know, it made it, uh, so the banks have to have kind of just more safe collateral. Mm-hmm. And then two, uh, above that kind of minimum threshold, we've just not been seeing a, a ton of bank lending uh, compared to, to prior rates. Banks generally um, in the U.S. And, and many other places have been have been pretty conservative uh, with, with, you know, exceptions uh, like we see in some well-known European banks. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, 
head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. Everything looks really ugly. Everything looks really terrible right now. Um, everything you're explaining to me, it feels a bit like, uh, well, me and Danny were talking about the other day, there's like this economic tug of war. Um, like in the UK, the government makes a decision, the Bank of England wants to rep- uh, respond, but every single time they, uh, they, they pull one lever, it pushes another, another lever back, and we have this kind of like cascade of issues. But on the end is people unable to heat their homes, unable to feed their children. Sometimes uh, people are facing the fact that they can't pay their mortgages. There's so many things going wrong. I struggle to see what is the way out of this. It's not just here. It's in the US. It's, it's, it's everywhere around the world. Like, is there any light in the tunnel? How do we actually kind of get out of these global economic problems? Do we just actually need a reset? Because one of the things we were talking about is, we went back to watch Ray Dalio's video. You know, you have periods of expansion, you have periods of contraction. But if we don't allow contractions to happen, we just seem to get in these kind of worse and worse situations. And, and the people who really suffer most are the poorest in society. So, like, how do we get out of this system? Can you fix it? Well, so before Europe had acute energy shortages, I was already viewing this as kind of an end game for this long-term cycle, which is basically that right. you know we've had four decades of lower and lower interest rates and higher and higher debt to GDP across the developed world, and you know that when you when you hit the zero bound, uh, or in some cases mildly negative, uh, you no longer have an offset. So so when debt is rising, but interest rates are falling, the in, the, the debt servicing costs are you know, often flat. They're you know they're not going up, uh, but when you have uh, you know a situation where interest rates are now flat or up, while debt as a percentage of GDP is also going up, that that's when you have that very dangerous combination of of actually higher and higher debt servicing costs, including at the sovereign level, uh, and that's when central banks run into you know a, a Kobayashi Maru. It's an impossible uh, scenario that there's there's no solution for, and so you know they're, what they're supposed to do is if you have high inflation, you tighten. Uh, and if you have, you know, low inflation, high unemployment, you loosen. That's that's kind of the the, the model that they've that they've been in. The what breaks that model is stagflation. When you have both weak economic situation, uh, financial instability, basically, you know, too much debt starts blowing up, uh, and you have high inflation. Uh, and so historically, like in the 1940s, which is the the time we have to look back to find this this combination for developed markets, you had major inflation. Uh, you had major currency devaluation. You had huge spreads between inflation and yields, uh, and you had pockets of yield curve control and financial repression, uh, which is basically all sorts of capital controls to prevent capital from moving around freely. Uh, you, you basically had to trap various entities into owning these bonds, uh, and you had central banks buying the bonds. And so that's the situation I find or I, I've been describing us as, as entering anyway for a couple of years, and we're starting to see that play out. Now, We've now added to it acute energy shortages, um, and really the only way out there is kind of emergency response, like to to get more energy supply. Basically, countries should be doing everything in their power to you know figure out how to get persistently more energy supply and to incentivize companies to go out and and get more energy supply. Uh, because for some countries, it is a, a national security risk at this point. And as you point out, it hurts the the you know the 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 least uh, resourceful members in society. The ones with the least the least ability to pay for that are the ones that are most impacted. Uh, and so, 
the way I've been describing it is that we're going to get periods of inflation until we fix the energy system. Uh, and and that's unfortunately that that can take quite a while to happen. And so, you know, you know, when I kind of rank things that would keep me up at night in terms of of markets, you know, acute energy shortages are, are pretty much at the top. Uh, you know, in, in developing countries, food and energy kind of compete for that top slot. In developed countries, you don't really have to worry about food shortages uh, because they're you know they're there's more resources to fix that, and instead it's about energy shortages because those are those are complex problems that are that are that take a lot of time to fix uh, because you know grids are complex, energy sources can't be changed on a dime, uh, you know import infrastructure needs to be changed, uh, new new wells and new uh, you know reserves have to be uh, created to to produce more of the energy that that's that's being in short supply, and so there's really no way out until the energy energy system is is resolved, and that I think it's going to take years. And therefore, it's a particularly bad problem for most of Europe because uh, the energy sector is lacked from investment in, I mean, particularly in the UK, uh, it highlights the issue that ed- energy sovereignty is important. Uh, one of the things I've been doing, Lynn, uh, I would love to run that by you and know what you think, but I'm now, hold- I'm now holding dollars. So I always used to have to just manage a, uh, a balance of Bitcoin and a balance of pounds. That's all I ever had to think about. But with such a massive drop in the value of the pound over the last year, which we, you know, me and Danny are experiencing now, when we come in here and you know, we're spending you know, $30, $40 on a lunch, that used to be £25. It's now close to £30, £40. Pounds. So I'm starting to hold uh, a balance of dollars, both for my business and both personally. Uh, is that a fair hedge to be doing? So I, I think currency diversification uh, is always reasonable. The the caution I would I would give is that when we do reach a point where the Fed is unable to keep tightening, right? So so it's really that that rate of change that matters. When the when the Fed is tightening more aggressively than most other developed market central banks, the interest rate spread uh, between what you get on on U.S. assets compared to foreign assets is wider. Uh, and so you know, for example, there's a lot of incentive to sell Japanese assets and buy U.S. assets. Uh, but when that stops increasing. Um, and it, it, especially if the treasury market breaks and the and the feds or you know or the bank system is forced to do some type of liquidity operation to to fix that similar to the UK, uh, that could be a, a structural peak in the dollar uh, for a period of time relative to other currencies. Right? So right now we've had the perfect conditions for dollar rally because you know we are more energy sufficient. We uh, you know the, the the Fed is is tightening more aggressively. Um, there there is all these dollar denominated debts throughout the world that, that basically represents demand for dollars. Uh, but there are major periods in history where you get a huge spike in the dollar and then you get a huge fall in the dollar. So so with the U.S. dollar situation, the, the one of the biggest weaknesses that the U.S. has had relative to the rest of the developed world is that we run these bigger trade deficits, which are normally bad for a currency. And so when, whenever we're like more dovish compared to the rest of the world or just as dovish, you, you have a tendency for the dollar to start falling. Uh, and so if, if we do reach a pivot point uh, where, where the Fed is unable to keep tightening, uh, you could get a pretty notable fall in the dollar. Now, because the United States is more energy uh, independent, or at least you know less less energy uh, vulnerable than what we've seen in, in Europe and and to some extent Japan, uh, you know that that keeps our you know basically the trade deficits of Japan and Europe got worse, uh, whereas the U.S. is still bad. 
Uh, and so that kind of makes that comparison harder. Whereas in, in, in pre-energy crisis markets, you would have had a, a, a trade surplus in Japan, a trade surplus in Europe. And so if the Fed loosens, uh, gets more dovish, you'd have a fall in the dollar. Now it's a little bit less certain because you have such a such a you know a crisis of of energy in those regions. But I do think that at some point the dollar could stop going up uh, relative to some of those other currencies because they'll reach a point where they're they're kind of at max tightness. So I would be I would be concerned about kind of pivoting too hard into the dollar at what what, what could end up being a, a local top. Uh, but I do think in yeah. general currency diversification is a good thing. Has the Fed essentially bought themselves a little bit of leeway then to actually print? Well, so it's funny. We're starting to see, I mean, the United Nations of all places called on, on the I Fed know. and other central banks to, to stop tightening. Uh, you know, they, they, they could cite uh, financial instability. Uh, as a as a reason, um, you know, th there's things that they can do or that the Treasury can do uh, in order to stop the dollar from going up. Uh, but all you know, they generally have bad optics when it, when official CPI in the United States is eight uh, percent, and and you know, Powell's trying to do his best impersonation of Volcker, uh, where you know he's trying to phrase his like you know, willing to sacrifice almost everything else in order to get inflation back down to the target. Uh, and I think you know it's either going to fail or it's going to be short-lived, right? Because I think, it, you know, I've described it like holding a beach ball underwater. As as long as we have these energy shortages throughout the world, uh, then, you know, whenever they're not, you know, kind of aggressively holding down demand, uh, that inflation is ready to reemerge. Uh, and and so, I, you know, basically I think that, you know, this is going to be an ongoing cyclical problem uh, until you get more of a supply response. So normally when you have high energy prices, you get a lot of new supply coming online. But that takes time. Uh, and, uh, you know, the markets are, because it's so volatile, markets aren't sure what energy prices are going to look like in five years, for example. So they don't want to bring on these long duration billion dollar projects. And then two, we've seen basically just because of the ESG uh, environment and because of things like windfall taxes and, and just, there's a lot of lack of clarity now uh, about forward policy around the, these energy sources, and I think I think you know basically pu public opinion and, and political opinion has to kind of change on that uh, in order to kind of get past this crisis. You know, then they can revisit whatever they want to do. But I think that right now, uh, you know, policy is kind of getting in the way uh, of some of this energy supply, and also some of it's just you know private pools of capital. They're saying, hey, we're going to divest from. You know, fossil fuel companies. We're going to divest from this, and so fossil fuel companies, like like oil companies and gas companies, they're being cash flow positive. So they're basically being very disciplined and very careful with how they manage their capital. They're saying, okay, we're going to be profitable. We're only going to, you know, we're not going to over drill. We don't want to make the mistake of like bringing out a lot of new supply right at the top of the market. Uh, and so they're playing it very cautiously, and that's kind of feeding into this supply limitation. Also, you have OPEC. Uh, is is purposely contributing to it, and so it's it's kind of a a, a toxic combo that's not going to uh, resolve itself until more energy supply comes online and is is encouraged to come online, and then is able to you know also get to market. So it's not just the production; it's also the infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure, LNG capacity, uh, things like that. Did you see that the CEO of Shell came out recently and said that uh, energy companies should be taxed more? I heard something along those lines, but I haven't I haven't read into it too deeply. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. Okay, so um, last thing I just want to ask you about, uh, Luke Woman put out a tweet, and you might have seen it. He said, in central bank circles, it's well known that world debt markets, as we know them, can only be maintained with cheap and cheaper oil. 
Without cheap oil, the entire system fails and reverts back to pay-as-you-go economies. Okay, I just, I didn't understand it, but I felt like it's something I should, or it should be, it would be helpful to understand. And do you agree with him? So, I, I do agree with him. Uh, he's a great analyst, and there's a couple ways to describe it. One is that, um, you know, basically economies flourish when energy is is cheap and abundant, right? And 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 so that you know, that necessary input cost becomes a much smaller percentage of our disposable income, of business expenses, of all sorts of things, and that allows other things to grow better. Um, and it also allows for less inflation and therefore lower interest rates. Uh, and when you do a calculation on, say, a stock valuation, you know you're you're generally comparing it to like a long duration bond. You're saying I could own a ten year treasury. Uh, what would it take me to to own this stock instead? Uh, and so if the ten year treasury is one percent, uh, the hurdle for owning that equity uh, is a lot lower, meaning that you're willing to pay a lot more than if the ten year treasury is four percent. Uh, then right. you're, you're not willing to pay as much for that equity. And so the problem is if you have a significant repricing uh, in bond yields due to energy shortages uh, and higher energy prices and higher inflation that comes with it, um, you know basically stock valuations are going to come down. Uh, and then the problem is that because systems are so financialized, uh, for example, in the United States, you know we have our stock market got up to 200% the size of GDP. Uh, and and if you if you graph tax receipts compared to the stock market, uh, there are very similar charts. You know, tax receipts stop going up and start going down even if, if the if the U.S. stock market rolls over. Uh, it's kind of like the tail wagging the dog. And that that's mm. that's you know if you if you include property prices, I mean different different countries have different bubbles, right? So some sometimes it's their property market, sometimes it's their stock market, sometimes it's a little bit of both. But generally, most you know developed countries are so. Uh, you know, they they had so such low interest rates and such high valuations of many of their assets, uh, and that's that's really not sustainable in a world of of higher energy costs. And then you have more acute problems like you know if energy gets out of hand, then you have Europe start shutting down like aluminum, uh, you know, refining and other types of yeah. of energy intensive manufacturing, uh, and then therefore you have just less economic activity. That's less tax revenue. You already have high deficits and high debts, right? So now you have more sovereign bond supply uh, coming to market because you're you're filling that that deficit gap, and so that's when you start to enter this kind of out of control inflation scenario where central banks have to print in order to support the, their sovereign bond markets, despite the fact that inflation's above their targets, uh, and so they they encountered that in the 1940s, uh, you know, due to populism and then due to war, and now they're encountering it due to you know, energy crises, uh, high debts, populism, um, and 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 this time it's also because of of how aged the West is, right? So a lot of our entitlement systems are stressed by the fact that you know there's a much higher share of people that are receiving benefits, uh, you know, relative to the size of the population compared to what, what it looked like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and so a lot of these things just aren't solvable uh, in, in a, in a workable time horizon. And so I think it's, it essentially ends with money printer go burr. Thank you so much. You honestly, you, you have a way of explaining everything so I can understand <laughs> it. Um, it's not pretty out there and it's not enjoyable. And, uh, uh, seeing some of the things that people are going through near where I live has me concerned, but at least you've helped me understand it a bit more. And, uh, I'll share this with my friends. I hope it'll help them. And I will see you very soon because I think I'm going to see you in Los Angeles, right? Yep. Yeah, we're going to try to make a, a work out there. Yeah, so I'll, yeah. I'll be there and, and you'll be there. We'll see if we can align. 
Awesome. Okay. Well, listen, I'm very excited about your book. I'm looking forward to seeing you in LA and thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this update with Lynn. We are certainly in very strange and difficult times. I know back in the UK where I'm from, people are really struggling with both the energy crisis and the increase in the cost of living. It's a difficult time. I've actually made a film about the cost of living, which is going to be coming out soon. Can't wait for you all to see that. Um, And as I mentioned in the intro, we did this remotely. We really wanted the update with Lynn. We know how good she is and she crushed it as ever, but it's going to be the last time I do this. Hopefully, I'm going to try and keep every show in person. I think they're just much better interviews. So, yeah, any questions about this? If you want to get in touch, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I hope you have a great week. I'm going to be heading over to Amsterdam later today. I'm flying tonight overnight to the UK and then hopping over to Amsterdam for the Bitcoin conference. I know a bunch of you are going to be there, so I hope to catch up with you and I'll see you all soon. Have a great week and thank you for checking out What Bitcoin Did.